0: Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. Amen. Such good truth. Uh, Before we dive into the message and scripture this morning, a couple of announcements for you and a small confession on my part. Uh, Was that for the announcements or the confession? We got a yay for those of you online. People are cheering. Uh, okay, we'll get to that part. Uh, next Sunday night, uh, next Sunday is Pentecost. We have kind of these three holidays in the church calendar. There is Easter and Christmas and which obviously don't come in that order in Jesus' life, but whatever. there are Easter and Christmas and Pentecost, which is, the celebration of the day that God gave us his spirit, his power and presence with us. We will talk more next weekend about God and Jesus and Holy Spirit and how all that works together. But next Sunday night, we're going to gather in our upper parking lot back here, and there'll be some parking spaces reserved for those who can't uh, walk up the, the ramp there but want to come. We will be out there uh, to, to sing together to listen to scripture together and kind of soak in that. Uh, And then at the very end of the night, uh, should you choose to, you'll be handed a little baggie of s'more ingredients. You can make yourself a s'more with uh, the fire pits that will be out there. So, So picture fire pits, a beautiful spring evening. Pray for a beautiful spring evening. We'll come inside if we have to, but not with the fire pits, that's not coming inside. So if you want your s'mores, pray for a beautiful spring evening. Uh, We'll be out there next Sunday. Also, you may have noticed as you walked in this morning uh, that there are baby bottles in the back. Uh, That is not because we're having a boom of babies in our congregation, that is because we are supporting Caring Pregnancy Center, which is an organization in town uh, that supports uh, young moms, young families, uh, both before and after their baby is born. Uh, And their annual fundraiser is to take one of those baby bottles, fill it with your loose change or loose dollar bills or more than that, and bring it back on Father's Day and we will get those funds to them to support their uh, ministry in town. And then uh, last announcement, we know that uh, there has been a, a bunch of news coming out this week came out right at the end of our work week uh, about masks and vaccinations and uh, vaccine sections and what people can and cannot do. Uh, and, and we will uh, get all of that uh, sorted out this week, and we will let you know. We, we just haven't sat down and dug into the information, so if you have questions about that, I don't have answers for you yet. We will have answers for you this week. What we do know is that we are moving into phase three this week, which will mean more chairs in here next week, uh, and uh, that will be, be uh, nice to, to, uh, to be able to do. Between that and our overflow room, Uh, We are recognizing that the need for signups at this point appears to have gone away. So if you go to look for signups for next week to come and go, oh my gosh, I can't come to church. There's no place to sign up. That is not true. Just come. So if you remember back a million years ago when we could just come, it'll be like that. So uh, just just come. And if you want a seat in here, yes, there will be more seats in here, but you may want to come a little early uh, or you may uh, want to come late and end up downstairs in the overflow room uh, down there. Uh, there's, there's just less supervision down there, so who knows how, how just kind of crazy worship party you could have down there, I guess, because I'm sure all of you would make really good choices uh, without supervision, all of you, every one of you. So, uh, the, uh, <laughs> you guys sound unconvinced. Okay, uh, the small confession uh, on my part. Uh, I am not particularly good at connecting with people. I'm not a, a networker. Like some, some of you know people who, uh, I know people who are just really great at making people feel connected, connected to each other. They know how to put this person in contact with that person and everybody's strengths or access. That's so fabulous, and I'm jealous because it's just not something I'm good at. And I'm aware that one of the expectations of my role is often that I will be really good at connecting with people. So my confession to you is that I'm just not. And I don't confess that in a like, hey, don't hold me responsible for this. Like, I, I, I need to grow in this area. And I know that. So the confession has two, I guess for two reasons. Uh, one. Um, is that I uh, need your accountability to continue to grow uh, in that. Uh, and two, uh, church, I, I need your help. Uh, I know some of you are really good at this. Some of you, like me, are growing in this. I, I need your help to help people feel connected. I know that there are people who get hurt by me not being good at, at connecting or, or making them feel like I've connected uh, with them. Uh, and if if you're one of those people, uh, I'm truly, I'm truly sorry. it's It's not something uh, it's not personal. Like if you're feeling like, man, uh, Josh talks to everybody else and doesn't talk to me, uh, it, that's not true. I'm equally bad at this across the board. it is not it is not personal. Uh, and and I certainly didn't mean to. So uh, the good news here, uh, is that I don't believe Jesus set up the church for all of the connections to run through one person or to run through a paid staff. So uh, I, I think this is what we as the church are supposed to do. We are supposed to connect with one another, care for one another, love and serve one another. So if you're going, oh man, I hope somebody is connecting with so-and-so because I'm aware that, that they're just feeling a little bit disconnected or disenfranchised, you know what, I'm sure Josh has that covered. Yeah, I probably don't. So I want to, hold me accountable to that, but also like, call them, reach out, help them feel connected. Uh, lament with them that I'm not good at it. I don't, I don't know what you want to do. But, but in some way, let's keep each other connected, uh, uh, help each other out, uh, love each other well. And if you are good at this, please engage in that. If you have ideas for how we as a church could be better about this, one of the things that I think I am good at is helping people uh, discern and make good plans for systems and how to make things happen. So if you're like, man, I kind of want to do this thing, but I'm not really sure how to do it, I would love to help walk you through If you've got great ideas for how we can be more connected as a church family, um, I, would, I would love to process those with you, uh, help uh, connect you with other people who are, are good at that sort of thing and, and make that happen in our, in our church. So uh, small confession, and again, I would love... I uh, love your help, both in accountability and in just doing it, making sure that we're connecting with each other, loving each other well. Uh, this last, whatever we're in now, 14 months has obviously had a lot of really hard things in it. There's been some good things. Some of us don't want to confess how much we've liked not being around other people, but there's been some good things to this year. One of the good things for this, some of you are shaking your head like, no, the extroverts are going, that cannot be a thing. Uh, One of the things that this year has been good for, if we have chosen to use it for this, is I think it's been a really good opportunity for self-reflection. A lot of the discourse in our society has been reflecting on how wrong other people are. But it's been a really good opportunity for any one of us who would like to take it. And the truth is, it is never too late for this. To reflect on ourselves, on the things we're good at or not good at. Uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Enneagram It is a personality profile or personal profile. Uh, It's kind of like Myers-Briggs or DISC or StrengthsFinder, if you're familiar with those. There are lots of these out there. And like all the other ones, the Enneagram is not as magical as some people would lead you to believe, and it is not as perfect at reading people as some might think. But like all the other ones, it is a good opportunity for self-reflection, for learning about yourself. The Enneagram in particular, which is sort of, feels like the personality profile du jour, like it's kind of the the fad one right now. I I think it's particularly good at helping us learn what motivates us, what drives us, drives our actions and decisions. So one of the things, and, and for me, it's not so much been learning what motivates me, it's been putting words to it, which is super helpful, to to not just know there's this kind of thing that drives me, but I can't put a name to it, It, it's helped with that. So one of the things that I have learned in self-reflection and Enneagram learning, whatever, this year, is that one of my primary motivations is safety. I am driven by trying to keep the people around me and the people I love and care about safe. Now, that can get really selfish really fast. Like any motivation, if I make it about me I, I'm gonna make bad decisions at that point. If, if my primary goal, because Jesus said it's my primary goal, is to love God and to love the people around me, but I decide my primary goal is to be safe, I'm not going to be following what Jesus wants me to do. But it's, it's been helpful for, for me uh, to, to learn, to know that, that this primary motivation is, uh, is out there for me, uh, sometimes I have to be careful like I think we all do, because my primary motivation may overtake other ones A- and if I make it all about one wedge of of this pie f- of motivations for decision making I'm going to make really bad decisions because I'm so zeroed in on looking through one window that I'll, I'll miss the rest of them attached to this idea I think for for me uh, is I like rules most of the time. I've, I've talked about before how uh, my kids, uh, when, uh, when, when they were growing up, I, I had to, to learn to ask when they said, like when they were four or five, and they'd say, hey, do you want to play a board game? I learned before I said yes that I needed to ask, are we playing by the rules on the box or are we playing by your rules? because their rules had an amazing tendency of changing halfway through, depending on how the game was going. So I I learned that I like rules enough that I wanna play by the ones on the box. I also will confess that I have a streak in me that likes to say, oh, that's your expectation to go that. Then I'll go this way, okay. I, I have a tendency to enjoy the game of getting around the rules too. But in general, I like The rules, and these two things are attached to me, safety and rules, for me in my life, because when I was little, I was fortunate enough to have loving people in my life, parents and teachers and others, who set rules to help keep me safe. Out of their love for me, there were rules and boundaries so that I would be safe, and so that I was put in a position for what was best for me. Now, I know that's not the case for everybody, For whatever reason, some people find uh, rules to be really restricting on their freedom. Or maybe they grew up in environments, maybe you grew up in an environment where the rules weren't used to express love and safety. The rules were used to trap you, to abuse you, to hurt you in some way, made you feel unsafe. And so the idea is that rules and safety go together. The idea that rules could be good is really, really hard. And And that seems... Uh, totally understandable to me that that it would feel that way. A while ago, uh, a youth leader was having a conversation with some teenagers in their small group and they'd read through a psalm that uh, talked about, the the psalm writer talked about how much they loved God's laws, loved God's rules and laws. And as they're talking about it, The kids in the group who had grown up in church were saying, okay, I get that we have to follow them, but I don't understand loving them. I don't understand why this this author is so excited about them. What's that about? Why would somebody like them? I mean, I get that we have to follow them, but why would somebody like them? And it was actually somebody who did not grow up in church, who had just given their life to Jesus a few months earlier, who said, oh, I, I totally get it. Because when you haven't had that kind of structure, when you haven't had somebody put rules in place in your life to help you thrive, to help you feel loved, when I, this gives me a context for, for knowing what I'm supposed to do, for knowing what my purpose is. I totally get it. And it's interesting to me that in our culture, as I look around, and, and you may disagree with me on this, but I feel like the church has become known in our society for being all about the rules. We become known for all of our thou shalt nots, right? For telling people all the things they can't do, all the ways that they need to change their life because yes, it'll be better for them, but it'll also be better for us, and it'll be better for society, and just here's all the rules, do the rule things. So because this has become our reputation in culture, and many in culture have pushed back on that going, whoa, who are, who are you to tell me that I have to live by your rules? There are sections of the church world that have said, okay, you know what? Grace overcomes all of that anyway, which, which is true. So let's just get rid of all the rules. Let's just say that grace wins, that in the end, all of the rules can just be shoved aside and we just don't have to worry about any of them. Now, the problem with that is that if we're going to take scripture seriously, the Old Testament and the New Testament are actually full of a lot of these, I mean, not completely, there's lots of other stuff in there too, but it, it's full of these rules, these laws, these commands of what we're supposed to do individually as groups. And, and so to just say, nope, none of that matters anymore doesn't line up with what we see and read in scripture. These, these laws are, are here. So the question is, why? what what is the purpose for all these rules and laws and commands what good could they possibly do safety is part of it but it's it's a very small part of it so these laws these rules and commands actually create a context for blessing create a context for blessings. So I'm just gonna write blessing up here on our whiteboard, and like I said, we're gonna do an art project here today, so if you wanna participate in that, and I won't judge if you don't, I just I will tell you in advance, my handwriting and my artistic skills are terrible, so yours isn't gonna look any worse than mine. My eight-year-old was kind enough to come up and, and go, Daddy, I'm pretty sure mine looks better than yours. Like, I'm sure it did. It's very nice of you to share that with me. Uh, sure it did, so, but, There's a little space on the top of your notes if you'd like to uh, participate as she did, and you are also welcome to come up afterwards and tell me that yours is so much better than mine. I won't be offended. So I'm just going to start by writing the word blessing up here. We'll just start with blessing. These laws and rules, oh dear, wrote too big, going to mess everything up, barely got started. Okay, we'll give it a shot, see what happens. Okay. These laws and commands set a context for blessing. Now let's define blessing because there are a few words that are more overused in church speak than blessing. The dictionary definition of blessing is God's favor and protection. Okay, satisfactory definition. I'm all right with that. The problem is with with that definition to me is that we are also clearly called in scripture to be a blessing, to bless the people around us. And, and we don't actually get to decide what God's favor and, and protection are. So there's got to be more to it than just that. So for our purposes today, let's, let's define blessing this way. And this is also in your notes. Blessing is seeking the greatest good for another. Blessing is seeking the greatest good for another person. In this case, we're talking about God's blessing, his greatest good for his people. Love, by the way, is blessing with a cost. Love is looking out for somebody's greatest good and being willing to pay the cost to make sure that happens. Whether we're talking about loving a spouse, loving our kids, loving an enemy, loving a neighbor, love is looking for their greatest good and being willing to pay the cost to make that happen. Okay, so let's look at this. Let's talk about blessing in Scripture. And we're gonna look at it uh, briefly at a bunch of different stories. We're gonna look specifically at the story of Abram, but we'll fly through a number of stories in Scripture. And I want us to see that there's a pattern to God's blessing of his people. Now, to clarify, this is not a formula. This isn't, hey, let me just make all of these things happen, check some boxes, and then I'll be blessed. As we'll see, that's not really what this is about at all. Anyway, it's not how this works. This is just an observation that there's some common elements in God's blessing of his people, okay? So to start, let's look at this story of Abram. We're gonna be in Genesis chapter 12, starting with the very first verse. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. It's a lot of blessing. When we're talking about God's blessings, like with Abram, God always starts with a people and a verb. A verb, for those of you who don't remember, is an action word. He starts with a people and an action, a people and a verb. So I'm just gonna draw people up here. I, all I can do is stick people so if you're a stick people person like me, have at it. If, if you can draw better people than me, that's, that's great. Uh, my heads keep getting bigger over here, so we'll talk about humility next week, apparently. We'll, okay, and then I don't have notes up here. I know you do. I'm just gonna write verb down here. God starts with a people and a verb. With Adam and Eve, when he started creation, he made people and he gave them some action steps. Go, be fruitful and multiply. Go, take care of creation, reign over it. Be its caretaker. To Abram, he said, I need you to leave here and I need you to go over there. A Little later to Moses, he said, Moses, I need you to go to Egypt and I need you and all the people to leave there and head out. He tells some people to wait some people to go, some people to stay. He gives some really strange directions to some of the prophets and the things they're supposed to do. And then by the time Jesus comes along, when Jesus was beginning his ministry, he went to certain people and he said, I want you to come and follow me. Told them to follow. God always starts with a people and a verb But, and this is really, really important. That command, that action step, always comes with the dignity of choice. He always gives people a choice. It always comes with the dignity of choice. Adam and Eve were allowed to well, we're given the opportunity to be fruitful and multiply, to take care of creation, but they chose that they would rather try to be like God. Abram didn't have to leave. Moses, when Moses was told to go, he said, all right, sure, but I've got a condition because I am not good at this public speaking thing and that is not happening. So God gave him the ability to make that choice. And said, fine, you can have your brother Aaron. He'll do the speaking parts. When Jesus was walking this earth, he invited many, many, many people to follow him. And some did, some didn't. Some did for a while, and then he'd say something they didn't agree with, and and they'd leave. And he let them do that. Always with the dignity of, of choice, We'll look more at why this element of choice is so important in a bit. Abram could have stayed put. He could have stayed very comfortable, as, as we'll read here in a second. He was very rich, but he didn't. He chose to follow God's command to go. So very next verse in Genesis 12, verse four. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, and all of his wealth, his livestock, and all the people he had taken into his household at Haran, notice he took no children, and headed for the land of Canaan. When they arrived in Canaan, Abram traveled through the land as far as Shechem. There he set up camp beside the Oak of Morah. At that time, the area was inhabited by Canaanites. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to you and your descendants. And Abram built an altar there and dedicated it to the Lord who had appeared to him. Abram is 75 years old. He doesn't take any children with him because he doesn't have any. Takes a lot of wealth, he's got a lot of that. He's got many servants and houseworkers, maids, butlers, whatever. He's got lots of livestock. He's got his wife and his nephew. He's 75, he's got no children, and God has the audacity to say, hey, I want you to go over there. And then Abram goes, and then God on top of that says, hey, at this spot, this is where I'm gonna give land to your descendants. Descendants, you don't even have children. And and I know some of y'all know where this story goes, how this ends. But if you've ever been really confused, hey, God, what are you doing? Abram had to be really confused. God, what are you doing? Over the next few chapters in Genesis, Abram and his wife go through some really strange things together, most of it geared toward, in some way, trying to figure out how to bless themselves. Yes, God had promised blessing. They said, well, this doesn't make any sense though. So we're gonna try to figure out how to, how to bless ourselves, how to take care of this ourselves. But, but God keeps showing up. And we'll look at one of those times God shows up in, verse, or in chapter 17 of Genesis. When Abram was 99 years old, okay? So a quarter century later, still no kids. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. At this, Abram fell face down on the ground. Then God said to him, this is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I am changing your name. It will no longer be Abram, which means father. Instead, you will be called Abraham, which means father of many for you will be the father of many nations. I will, make you an ex- I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations and kings will be among them. I will confirm my covenant with you and, this, and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And I will give the entire land of Canaan where you now live as a foreigner, to you and your descendants. It will be their possession forever and I will be their God. He says, I will be their God. Now a covenant is a mutual agreement between two or more parties that has something on the line. There's some expectations of behavior in this covenant, something that you will do and I will do. And there's some collateral put up, something to say, hey, if you back out on your part, This is what you're gonna have to give up, right, to guarantee that you stay in the covenant. When God makes this covenant with Abraham, he doesn't put up anything as collateral other than himself. He simply says, I will be your God. I will be their God. My word, my character is enough. You don't have to worry about whether I will back out on this because I say it's true. I will be their God part of the pattern of God's blessing of people is that God offers himself. Time and time again, God offers himself. Now, I don't know how I would draw God up here in a picture, so I'm not even gonna try. I'm just gonna write God down down here. And again, you guys have the little note for it. God offers himself to Adam and Eve, God offered relationship. He walked with them. They went on walks in the evening together. He said, I am here with you, for you, all the time. To Moses, God gave his name and his authority. He gave power to Joshua and Gideon and Samson and David and on and on the list goes in scripture. To Elijah, he gave him his presence. And in Jesus In Jesus, God gave himself for us as a ransom for all of us because God is love. And so he will seek our greatest good. He will bless and he will pay the cost to make it happen. This is the heartbeat of scripture. That our greatest good, our blessing, is found through God's offer of Himself for us. God offers Himself to the people. And then, as we saw in verse 8, God offers the people a home. He says, I will give them the entire land of Canaan. God offers the people a home. Okay, so I'm gonna make an attempt to draw a home here and kind of, well. mm, I mean, the roof is sagging, but that's how it would work if I tried to build an actual house anyway. So, okay, there we go. Home right, look, I even have room for a little door. Look at me go, okay. God offers the people a home. To Adam and Eve... He gave them the Garden of Eden. To Abraham and his descendants, all the people that would become the nation of Israel, he offered them this promised land. Even when the people of Israel messed up and were exiled, captured, and, and taken away to be servants and slaves of four nations, even then God promised them a return to their promised land. He promised them a home. Now, Jesus promised no earthly home, but he did promise this in John chapter 14. He said to the people, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Jesus promised a heavenly home. And throughout the rest of the New Testament, the authors who were writing letters to the early churches to encourage them, time and time again, talked about looking forward to a home that is yet to come that we are actually foreigners walking through this land. We are citizens of heaven. There is a home we belong to, a home that is coming for us. Now, I do want to take a second to acknowledge that for many of us, the idea of a home, the idea of home creates feelings of love, of safety, of being able to, uh, kind of take a, a deep breath and a sigh of relief and just be at home. But I also know that that's not true for everyone. And and so if home brings up negative connotations for you, I, I don't want this to trip you up. It, this, is, this is just an analogy. But I do want you to know that the home that you're being invited into by God, the home he offers you. This is, not, this is not like that home you grew up in or that home that you have lived through. This is a place where, where you are safe, where it is loving. This, this is a home that exists for your good, not for your terror. The home where you are loved. So don't trip on this analogy, but know that what God offers you is good and that you are loved. Okay, now a question, and and I know I ask a lot of rhetorical questions, but this one I would actually love an answer if for no other reason than make sure on this beautiful day you're still with me and not thinking about what you're doing at the barbecue this afternoon. What did we draw to signify a home? What kind of things did we draw here? People. And a house. A house. What, kind of things, what kind of things did I draw to make a house? What are all these lines? There's a roof. There's a building. There's walls, right? There's a door. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Very well done. So, we draw boundaries, right? We draw draw a roof, draw a wall, we we draw draw boundaries. Part of the context for your greatest good comes when God defines that home he's offered you with boundaries. Part of the, the context for our greatest good, for our blessing, comes when God defines that home with boundaries. All right, boundaries down here, there's a lot of letters. I'm hoping to spell them all right. Sorry if this is starting to get small for you at home. Maybe it's already been small. You're just gonna have to trust me that that word there is boundaries. All right. God defines that home with boundaries. God called Moses to lead the people out of Egypt and into the promised land, but before they even got to this promised home, he established some boundaries. When we talk about the laws and rules of Scripture, often the first thing people think about is they think about things like the Ten Commandments and other laws and rules, boundaries, commands that God set up for the people of Israel as they were coming out of four centuries of slavery in Egypt and into their own new home, into their promised land. All the laws and rules were there to provide boundaries for their good. The laws and rules throughout Scripture are designed for our good. Now we know, even if you've never been a parent, you know that boundaries and good boundaries are part of good parenting. Hey, you can't go there. Hey, 16 donuts is enough. Hey, uh, don't treat them that way. And no, that was not permission. I heard you laugh. That is not permission to eat 16 donuts. You're gonna get me in trouble with your mother. Okay. No donuts. I don't know. Okay, we're making up boundaries as we go here. We know that having solid boundaries for our kids that they can depend on and count on, that they can feel safe within, that are set up for their greatest good. This is part of good parenting. Now, I'm, I'm not there yet, but I have a theory from years of being around teenagers and their parents. The part of what we struggle with as kids get older is that they start to have the ability to go further and further outside the places, the boundaries where we can keep them safe, where we can make sure they're making good choices for their greatest good. Now, you can be equally excited that they can move far beyond your boundaries, but that's a whole nother sermon. If your home, in fact, was difficult growing up, if as I was talking about home being a place that was tough, it is most likely because your home lacked good boundaries. Where the boundaries were there to keep you trapped or to hurt you, or maybe there weren't good boundaries around your space or around your body. Or maybe your parents felt like they were making really good boundaries for you. But there wasn't good boundaries around your mind and you, didn't, you weren't allowed to have a thought for yourself. Whether it's around your body, your space, your mind. In some way, you weren't protected and honored by the people who were supposed to do that. But in here, in here you will be protected and loved and favored and and blessed. In here, in this home that God offers us with these boundaries, in here is your greatest good Because God knows your greatest good. He knows what is best for you because he's God. He kind of knows everything. And and to be out here, like I I confessed earlier, I, I have a streak in me that likes to know what the rules are so that I can get around them. When I wander out here, outside the boundaries that God has set up for me, which by the way, when we say the word sin, that's all we really mean, going outside the boundaries God has set up for our greatest good. When I wander out here, that's not freedom. Like you remember being a teenager and thinking that all freedom was found outside your home. Well, we discover when we wander outside the boundaries that God has set up for us, that's not freedom. What that is is saying, God, I know what's best for me better than you do. Now, you may not be thinking that that's what you're saying. You may be looking for freedom. You may be saying, no, I just don't believe God has anything for me or whatever it may be. And you may be totally fine with making that choice even to say, yeah, actually, I do know what's what's good for me better than God does. Okay, but let's at least name the choice that you're making. You're making the choice that you know what is best for you better than God does. And there is always the dignity of choice. God is not gonna force us to stay in there. The people of Israel actually spent so much time out here, so much time wandering around, that God was like, actually, you can't come back in the house, right? Actually, you're just gonna have to live out there for a while. And these four nations came in and they took them from the promised land. Now they may have been in the physical boundaries of their home, but they were not living within the boundaries of the commands that God set up for them. And so four nations came in and they took them off and they took them away to be slaves and servants back in their homeland. And you know what God told them to do while they were slaves and servants? Practice. I mean, he didn't use that word, but what he told them to do, he said, you're gonna be there for seven decades and here's what I want you to do. I want you to bless the people around you. I want you to practice what is supposed to look like in here. I want you to practice blessing them. I know they took you from your home. I know they have ruined your lives. And what I'm asking you to do is to practice blessing them. So for us who are foreigners wandering through this land who are actually citizens of heaven, what we are supposed to do is practice. We are supposed to practice the things of heaven while we are here on earth. We are supposed to look to bless the people around us. We're supposed to pray for healing. We're supposed to love and serve our neighbors and our enemies. We, we practice. We pray, God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, so let's practice. Let's bless the people around us. Love somebody as God loves them. that isn't the church's reputation. The church's reputation isn't for practicing the things of heaven. The church's reputation is for trying to force the rules, for shouting all those thou shalt nots. Now, whether that reputation is earned or not could be argued, but it is the reputation, I believe. And I think we get that reputation because we're not focused on the blessing part, we're focused on the boundary part where we say, actually, I need you to come inside this house. I I need you to follow all the rules and then I will bless you. Then I'll love you. I need you to do all the things and follow all the rules so that you're in a space that I'm comfortable with so that I can love and bless you. You stay within the boundaries, then I will love and bless you. To practice the things of heaven, we, the church, our church and every church, we're gonna need to stop seeing people as bundles of morals to be shaped and molded so that we're more comfortable and start seeing them as people, as people to be loved. God's plan to bless the people of the world always starts with a people and a verb. And in the era we live in, an era under Jesus' resurrection, God has gathered the church and said, go. God has gathered the church and said, bless. God's plan to bless your neighborhood, your workplace, your family starts by gathering you and saying, go, bless, practice. We do the things of heaven. Seek good for those around us and be willing to pay the cost to see it happen. We love as God loves. See, for God, this whole thing, this whole home, these boundaries, this blessing, this doesn't hinge on the boundaries. This doesn't hinge on the people. This hinges right here in the middle. This hinges on God, on him, on relationship with him. This doorway is opened through invitation by him, through relationship with him. And this door swings on the hinges of grace. Before there were boundaries, God was still blessing people. Before he ever gave the law, he was blessing Adam and Eve. He was blessing Abraham. He was blessing his descendants. He was pulling the Israelites out of slavery. Before there was the law, he was there. He was there. The blessing has always come through relationship with him, but we get so focused on the people or the boundaries or the choices that we miss that what we are called to do is invite people into relationship with him, that what we're called to do is to lean into that relationship with him. Now, we're not the first people to miss this. The Israelites made it about the law or about avoiding it. The Pharisees made it about the law. By the time Jesus comes around, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they make it about the law and and about being blessed. We follow the boundaries so that we're blessed. If you don't follow the boundaries, you're not blessed. Follow these rules and then we'll love you. Sounds familiar. We don't make it in this house. We don't make it into God's blessing by following all the rules. Scripture is very clear that nobody's ever been able to do that. not perfectly, we make it in because we're invited in through relationship. Blessing doesn't happen because we follow the rules, it happens because we're in relationship. Okay, so what does all of this have to do with the purpose of the law, and the purpose of all these rules? We've said in this series, we wanna look at the heart of God We wanna know God more. Not just know about him, but know him, know his heart. And this is part of the heart of God, to bless people and to set up a context for it. But we also wanna use this series to point us toward the New Testament. In a couple of weeks, and we'll give you more information starting next week, in a couple of weeks, we're gonna read through the New Testament together through the summer as a church, or at least you are invited to. We would love to have you join us in that. Starting June 1st, there'll be three or four chapters to read every day. And we'll read through God's word together through the summer. How does all of this law and rule set up what we need to know for the New Testament? Through Jesus, God decided to make the purpose of these laws clearer. Through Jesus, God became one of the people so he could personally invite us into this context for blessing. And then Jesus said this in Matthew chapter five. He said, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophet. I I didn't come to blow up the walls. We're not trash in the house. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. What is the purpose of the law? To give us a context. For blessing, a little later, well, much later, I suppose, after Jesus's death and resurrection, the apostle Paul, early church leader, preaching to a very different group of people, when he says this about Jesus, his purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, crawling toward this doorway, though He is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. In him we live. Jesus has come to fulfill the purpose of the law. This is crazy to to me, and, and I hope this analogy works. Through Jesus, God has become the home he invites us into. Like just in case we thought this was about boundaries and rules, just in case we thought this was about people or doorways, just in case we thought we would just blow up all the rules and ignore them. God said, no, this is so much about relationship. I will become the house. I'll become the purpose of the law. I will become the context for blessing. Jesus's death ensured that we have a way in, that our wanderings, no matter how far off this page we may have gone, our wanderings are all forgiven when we come to him. His resurrection from the dead not only confirmed the authenticity of what he was saying because, oh man, if you can promise to rise from the dead and then do it, there is something about you. But it also gave us new life, resurrected life in him. We are all invited to find life in him, in relationship with him. When Jesus started with people and a verb, He didn't say, come and follow the rules. He said, come and follow me. And we still have the same invitation. Jesus says to each and every one of us to come and follow him. And anyone, anyone who believes that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead is invited into this context for blessing, is invited in, to what is our greatest good. Now, that will not always feel good. It will not always be the things that we want, but it will be our greatest good, and we're invited in. You are invited in to relationship with Jesus. No matter how far beyond boundaries you think you've gone, no matter how much you hate the boundary, you're invited in to come and follow Jesus, to be in relationship with him, to be in this context for your greatest good. For centuries, people would wander out beyond the boundaries of God and and the way for them to come back in, the way that the law set up, was through a death of some sort, death of an animal, a sacrifice of a crop, because like all kids, we needed to understand that there are consequences for going outside the boundaries. there are consequences for for our wandering. And the consequences of the law set up was that something had to die. Jesus became the boundary by becoming the one who paid for the consequences. That through his death, he became the person who opens the door. He becomes this home by rising from the dead we come alive in him. And so we take time to remember through something we call communion, we take time to remember that Jesus paid the cost, that that God loved us so much and his desire to bless us was so strong that through Jesus he would pay the cost to invite us into relationship with him and invite us into his blessing. So the night before Jesus was killed, Publicly, brutally killed and shamed and humiliated, he gathered people. He gathered a few of his friends and they ate together. And as they were eating, he took the bread and he broke it and he passed it around and he said, this is my body broken for you. This is the representation of the cost paid because of my love for you. And any time you eat of it, any time you eat this incredibly common thing in a meal, remember me. So let's eat together and remember. And when they were finished, he took the wine and he passed it around and he said, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And every time you drink of it, remember, remember that you are forgiven. Remember that you are loved. Remember that you are invited in to relationship. The cost has been paid. So let us drink and remember together. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you that your love for us was so much, your desire to bless was so much that you were willing to pay the cost, that you were paying, willing to pay a cost that I can't even imagine. God, I'm so grateful that your love for each and every one of us was so much greater than whether we did the right thing or the wrong thing, was greater than our ability to follow the rules or provide safety or blessing for ourselves. But do you invite us in to know you, to be loved by you, to be blessed by you? God, thank you that you have our greatest good in mind. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for paying the cost. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.